Alright, well this morning we are resuming our exposition of the Gospel of John. So I want you to turn there with me. The Gospel of John. And our passage for this morning is John chapter 8, verses 21 through 30. Now, as you turn there, let me remind you of where we are broadly in this narrative. It was in the first four chapters of the book of John that uh, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is presented as the Son of God who has come to save. He's presented to John the Baptist and the disciples and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and then, in, and then to the Samaritans as the expected Messiah. Um, however, starting in chapter 5 of the Gospel of John, uh, most of what he, we have seen so far is a fierce opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that opposition has actually mounted with every verse that we have read. It has gotten progressively worse. First, he was opposed in Jerusalem where he heals the crippled man on the Sabbath. And that's in chapter 5. And then that theme of rejection is continued into chapter 6 where Jesus is opposed in Galilee at his bread of life discourse or after it. However, starting in chapter 7, he's back in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths and the hostility against him is showing no signs of slowing down. Uh, nevertheless, it is through all of that that Christ is actually being afforded an opportunity to showcase how patient, how gentle he is as a divine teacher. 1 Timothy 2 verses 24 and 25 says that a faithful minister of the word is not quarrelsome, but kind to all, Paul says, able to teach Patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. And then he says in chapter 4 verse 2 of 2 Timothy that the minister of the word is to reprove, rebuke, exhort. And then he adds with great patience and instruction. And the Lord Jesus is actually modeling that for us in these verses. He is wrestling with sinners as they are rejecting him. He's wrestling with them in an incredible way. He's wrestling with their pride. He's wrestling with their worldliness. He's wrestling with their unbelief. And he's wrestling with their ignorance. And he is then bringing his own sheep into the fold. He uh, is winning over for himself some. So let's actually go ahead and start reading John chapter 8 verse 21 where Jesus is modeling for us patience or patient endurance in teaching then he said again to them the Pharisees I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin where I am going you cannot come so the Jews were saying surely he will not kill himself will he since he says where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, You are from below. 
I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believed that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Now, as I said, the great theme of these verses is Jesus' gracious way of dealing with his opposition. He bears with their pride, with their worldliness, with their unbelief and with their ignorance. He patiently and faithfully exposes one by one those uh, sins to help these sinners see their own need of forgiveness. And that's actually how he deals still with sinners. It's how he deals with us. Sometimes we wonder, uh, is the Lord done with me? Have I sinned myself out of his grace? But this is the kind of passage that actually reminds us of just how gentle and patient he is he's gentle and yet perfectly truthful in his instruction and the first thing that we see here is how he wrestles with the pride of man how he wrestles with the pride of man and that starts in verse 21 look at verse 21 then he said again to them now stop there the the word then here is connecting the narrative here with what has come before in their increasing rejection of Jesus Christ the Jews have reached the point that they want to arrest him verse 20 says that no one seized him but the point there is that they wanted to and they would have if they could have so the Lord is responding to their hostile reaction that he's getting here what does he say to them he says well, he uses actually a stern warning here. He says, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Now, obviously, the idea of Christ going away here speaks about a lot more than just the physical removal of his presence. Although it does involve, involve that because the way in which he's going away is through death and resurrection and ascension. So he will not be in the world physically anymore, but... That will only be a result of his, the Jews' rejection of him. He's going away uh, is a spiritual abandonment of those who are rejecting him. He has come as the Messiah with open arms. He is offering himself to his people. And yet he is being turned away. That, of course, had been written. Isaiah 53.3 He was despised and forsaken of men. And Daniel 9.26, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
So the Lord was to be rejected. He is being rejected even in this passage. However, he makes it clear here that that rejection is not going to be without some serious regret. He is calling these people to turn back from what they are doing by telling them about the consequences of their actions. Notice that after saying, I am going away, he then adds, and you will seek me. You will seek me. Now, this seeking here, to be sure, is not really what we might call a spiritual seeking. In other words, the Jewish leaders are not going to be crying out for him to forgive their sins. For him to reconcile them with God. They're going to be seeking the Lord, but not for what he actually has to offer. How do I know that? Well, because scripture is clear that no one who ever comes to Jesus with a sincere heart, wanting what he actually offers, will be turned out. Psalm 51 verse 17, a broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And Psalm 107 verse 17, he has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. And John 6.37, the Lord Jesus Christ says, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So the, Jew, the, the Lord Jesus Christ does not turn away anyone who comes to Him in a spiritual way, so to speak. The one who comes to Him for His atoning blood, for eternal life, for reconciliation with the Father. Which means that the seeking here that the Jews are going to be doing is a kind of seeking of someone who simply wants to get out of some consequence of something. They want an immediate deliverance from some danger like the Israelites in the book of Judges. They wanted deliverance from their oppressors. But as soon as God would deliver them, they would go right back to their old sins, which shows that they never actually wanted to get rid of the evil of their sin. They just wanted to get out of the consequences of it. And even today, by the way, there are many people like that. They, they become Christians or make a profession of faith when their health take, takes a turn for the, for the worse. Or their marriages are in shambles. Or they are in financial hardship or death. Is knocking at their doorstep. They seek the Lord. But only so that He will get them out of trouble. However, later on when things do get better. They're back to their old ways. And in doing so, they show that they were not sincere. They were not looking for the Lord in a spiritual sense. They just wanted to get out of immediate danger. Not from the evil of sin itself. And that was... Really the purpose for why Jesus Christ had come. To rid us of the evil of sin. And what will happen here with the Jews. Is that they are seeking the Lord superficially. Maybe this is a reference to 70 AD. When the Roman army comes marching into Jerusalem. And is raising the city. Maybe at that point these men will be crying out for the Lord Jesus Christ. To save them. They will want His help, but it will be nowhere to be found. Or else, He could even be speaking of the last day when they're being dragged into the terrible judgment seat of God. And they'll appeal to the Lord Jesus Christ in some way to get them out of danger. 
there will be no answer. There's a point at which Jesus Christ is no longer outstretched, no longer has outstretched arms. And we cannot know when that will be. But that's why we're called to seek the Lord while He may be found. Before the opportunity slips by. Today is the day of salvation. Because He says here, You will seek Me then, and you will die in your sin. That expression, to die in one's sin, is, if you think about it, a more so legal idea. It means to die with the guilt of one's sin on his shoulder. And so it is to be judged according to one's sin. The believer, to be sure, doesn't have to deal with the consequences, the legal consequences of his sin. Psalm 32 verse 2, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. In Isaiah 43 verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sin. So the Christian is the one who is free from the guilt of his own sin. But the one who rejects Jesus Christ, on the other hand, he has to bear the guilt of his own sin, the weight of it. And for that reason, he can never enter into God's presence. That's why Jesus says here at the end of verse 25, where I am going, you cannot come. Of course, where he is going is the third heaven. That place in creation where unrighteousness does not enter. That place in creation that is prepared for the redeemed and his holy angels, where they enjoy perfect fellowship with one another and with God eternally. And where in the words of Herman Bobbing, natural life is unfolded by grace to its highest splendor and most bountiful beauty. Um, Hebrews 12.22 calls it the city of the living God. And Luke 23.43 calls it paradise. You might remember Jesus said to the thief at the cross in that passage that on that very same day, both of them after death would be together in paradise. And also he's telling his opponent here that that is exactly where he's headed when he goes away. But that place will be off limits to everyone who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you can't come. You will not be able to. The door will be shut. And there will be no chance whatsoever of getting in. That's the warning. The Lord is loving it. Patient enough to warn these sinners. He's telling them, these are the consequences that you will have to face. If you keep heading the way that you're heading. And yet notice the response here. Verse 22. So the Jews were saying. Surely he will not kill himself. Will he? Since he says I, where I am going you cannot come. Now remember back in chapter 7. Uh, Jesus uh, tells them the same thing. That he's going somewhere else. And they won't be able to come. And they respond by asking. Is, if he is going to go abroad somewhere. However. Here, they seem to be actually getting what he is talking about. They do understand that he is speaking about what happens after this life. By saying, I'm going away and you can't come. And we know that because of their question. They say, is he going to kill himself? And why would that separate Jesus from them? Well, because in Jewish tradition, during this time... 
suicide was a kind of unpardonable and, and a final sin. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, they thought that the worst part of Hades was reserved for those who killed themselves. And the Jews are saying here that if Jesus killed himself, he would be going to a place that is off limits to them. In other words, he would be going to hell, whereas they would be going to glory. So this is not just blasphemy, but it's also blatant pride and self-righteousness. These men are so confident in their own works that they don't need a savior. And yet, the amazing part, again, is that the Lord is not incinerating them on the spot. He's not blowing them up into smithereens. No, He passes over the offense and He keeps instructing. He keeps putting up with their pride. And that actually brings me to a second point. Because Jesus does not only wrestle with the pride and self-righteousness of these sinners, but He also wrestles with their worldliness. Their worldliness. Notice what, what it says in verse 23. And He was saying to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Now again, notice, the Lord Jesus Christ did not bother to answer their insult. But rather, because He's a faithful teacher, He actually keeps showing them what is wrong with them. And He lists here really two problems that they have. The first one relates to their origin. He says, they are from below. From below as opposed to from above. From the earth as opposed to from heaven. That's their origin. And that's a problem. Why? Because it's a, this is a fallen world. And so whatever comes out of it is weighed with a curse. For example, James 3.15 says that he, he talks about the kind of wisdom that is earthly, natural, demonic. That's the wisdom from below. Whereas the wisdom from above, he says in verse 17, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. So you have a contrast there in the New Testament between what is from below and what is from above. The Lord Himself is from above, as it says here. And that's why these men are rejecting Him. In their very origin, they're contrary to Him. Job says that the natural man is an unclean thing coming out of an unclean thing. That's Job 14.4. And Paul says that man is from the earth, earthly. And a child of wrath. And Moses says that man is evil from his youth. And David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. So we are born filthy. And with a natural bent against God and Christ. This is precisely why we need a second birth. Right? That's why John chapter 3 verse 3 says that unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And 1 John 4, 6 says that believers are from God. In other words, our very origin, as it were, our fromness has to change before we can embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we say that even in the order of salvation... Regeneration comes before faith itself. Uh, not chronologically speaking, to be sure, but logically speaking. In other words, 
you need to first be born again and out of your new birth, then you are able to embrace the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Although, strictly speaking, both of, both of those things happen at the same time. You believe and are born again at the same time. But when we preach the gospel, we don't tell believers, believe, or we don't tell unbelievers, believe so that you can be born again. That would be wrong. No. We tell them, you need to be born again. That's an indicative. We tell them, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, have faith in Him, repent, believe. That's a command. The believing is something that we do. But the new birth comes logically before the believing. And it's a secret work of the Spirit of God. Over which man has absolutely no control. That's why we use the analogy of a second birth. How much control do you have over your first birth? None, right? And the same way, it is God who has to bring you. A second time into existence. He has to make you a new creature by his own power and grace. Otherwise, man is unable to make himself be born. Again, the, the Ethiopian cannot change his skin. And neither the leopard his spots. And so the unregenerate cannot give himself a new heart. But that's why when we preach the gospel, we do have to keep in mind that we're speaking to dead people. And it is God's authority and choice to make them be born again as they hear the Word of God. He causes them to be born again through the living and abiding Word of God. But it is again His decision, His choice. Otherwise, they will continue to reject us. But we have to be faithful to proclaim the message and let God... Decide the results. But again, they'll keep rejecting us. And not only because of their earthly origin, but also because of the fact that they have a worldly nature. And that's the second problem that Jesus lists here. He tells the Pharisees, you are of this world. Now this is really a comment on the nature of the unbeliever. It's not just that he's born into a corrupt and cursed world. But that he actually belongs to it. His mind is preoccupied with it. He loves it. That's why Paul says of people like this in Philippians 3, 19 and 20. That their God is their appetite. And their glory is their shame. And they have their minds set on earthly things. That's what Jesus means when he speaks of being of this world. He's talking about a love for it. An attachment to it. Which is actually in direct opposition with a love to God. That's why he can say, you are of this world. I am not of this world. In other words, you can't love me. Because I myself am antithetical to the world system. That you so much adore. And that one day Jesus Christ himself is going to destroy. That's why 1 John 2 verses 15 and 17 says, do not love the world. Nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So loving God and loving this world is 
Much like trying to drive two cars at the same time. It just can't be done. It's impossible to be at once enchanted with this world system and its lusts. And also to love Jesus Christ and to have Him as Lord. The Jews were lovers of the world. So Jesus tells them that that's why they're in danger of dying in their sins. And that's in the first phrase of verse 24 here. He says, therefore, or for this reason, because you are of this world and you love this world and you are from it and of it, I said to you that you will die in your sins. In other words, in other words your worldliness is going to destroy you. Again, patiently instructing sinners to turn from their own way. So he's warned them of pride and he has warned them of worldliness. Even while they're showing nothing but hatred toward Him. Third, the Lord Jesus Christ also wrestles with man's unbelief. With His unbelief. He instructs man in His pride. He instructs man in His worldliness. And He instructs man in His unbelief. And that's in the second half of verse 24. He says, For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So there's a call to faith here. Jesus tells us exactly what it, what it is that we need to believe. He says, believe that I am He. Now, you might notice in your Bible that the pronoun He there is uh, in italics. And that's a way for the translators to let you know that they've added that word into the text to make it more readable, to make it flow better. But... The Greek simply says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. In other words, Jesus is actually applying to himself one of God's names. The, the name given in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. The God who led Israel out of Egypt and the God who redeemed sinners from their bondage to corruption. In other words, and this is a, an important point to make, those who reject Jesus Christ as God are unbelievers. Right? That's why we don't accept, for example, Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons as our brothers and sisters. We can't. They're actually our mission field. Because according to Jesus' own words here, they are unbelievers. If you reject His deity, you are by definition an unbeliever and liable to the penalty of your own sins. However, the man or woman who embraces Jesus Christ as the incarnate and eternal Son of God is saved. He's saved from condemnation and punishment. And that's why... That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is telling these men. Even after they have insulted Him and rejected Him repeatedly, He's still holding out His hand. He's wrestling with their unbelief. So He wrestles with man's pride, with His worldliness, with His unbelief. And fourth, He wrestles with man's ignorance. With His ignorance. Verse 25. So they were saying to Him, Who are you? Now to be sure, they're asking that because of... What he has just said about himself. He said, I simply am. Pure life, pure being, no predicate, I am. But the Jews are using that as an opportunity for sarcasm. They're saying, well, if, you, if we are to believe that you are, at least then tell us who you are. 
However, in acting this way, they're actually just reflecting uh, an inner and deeper reality. And that is the fact that the unbeliever does not know Christ or God. He's blind and willfully so. I mean, these men, again, have heard his preaching and they have seen his miracles. And yet they're still asking Jesus Christ, who are you? Who are you? They just don't want to see. But notice... He's still putting up with them here. It says, Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? Now interestingly, the expression from the beginning in the Greek doesn't actually have the pronoun from. That's why it's in italics in your Bible. It just says the beginning. And it actually calls to mind as you're reading it, passages like, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, or Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. So it seems a way, it seems to be a way that John is using here to communicate the fact that the Lord is speaking and testifying about Himself. He has been doing so, not just from the beginning of this conversation that He's having with the Pharisees, or from the beginning even of his ministry, from the beginning of history itself. When Moses started to write down the scriptures, God started to, Jesus Christ started to tell the Israelites who he was. Christ was testifying of himself. The scriptures are from him and they testify of him. And Peter himself said in 1 Peter 1.11 that the prophetic writers of the Old Testament had been guided by the Spirit of Christ as they wrote. So Jesus Christ again has been revealing Himself to Israel throughout the ages. He's been telling them who He is for a long time and yet at this point they're still oblivious. That's why in verse 26 He says, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, the Many things here are really many evil things. In other words, Jesus could bring up a litany of charges against these people. In that second. Because He is omniscient. He knows exactly every way in which you and I have sinned. Every way in which these people had rejected Him. Even better than we ourselves know our sin, Christ knows them. You know, Christians typically think that they know how bad their sin is. The reality is, they're always worse than we think. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things. We're always worse than we think we are. Solomon himself says that every man's way is right in his own eyes. That's Proverbs 21.2. And of course, Peter himself said... To Jesus, I would never do that. I would never deny you. So we just naturally, this is part of our own corruption. We see ourselves in a better light than we should. We are partial to ourselves. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one who can actually make an accurate assessment of our hearts. His word exposes us and brings out The hidden things in them. And he says to the Jews here. I could bring up a pretty big list against you. But notice. He doesn't do it. Why? Well because that was not his purpose. In coming into the world. He came to save. Not to condemn. 
Now sure, there will be a condemnation, but that will be a byproduct of his actual purpose, which was to save. That was not the mission itself. So instead of sitting in a, ju- in a judgment seat right there, which he will do one day, but instead of at this moment sitting in some judgment seat and start to say, these are the things that I have to speak about you and to judge concerning you, and they are A, B, C, D, etc., Instead of doing that, he actually just entrusts himself to the Father. He falls back on the Father. He says, but he who sent me is true. Notice he describes the Father as he who sent me. So by true, Christ means true to his promises. This is to say that even if the whole world were to reject the Lord Jesus Christ, that would not change the fact that God did what God said he was going to do. He had promised the Messiah and He has delivered. Here He is. So Jesus does not actually need to expose the wickedness of the Jews yet. He doesn't need to go ahead and condemn. He doesn't need to put them on the dock. Because He has the backing of His faithful Father who keeps His word. And He knows that one day He will be vindicated. He will be shown to have come from God. And He even provides an irrefutable evidence of that here. He tells the Jews how it is that we can all be sure that He is from God. And that's at the end of verse 26. He says, In the things which I heard from Him, these I speak to the world. Now obviously, the things which I heard refers really to the sum and substance of His gospel, His message. But notice the past tense of the verb to hear. The things which I heard heard in the past. You say, when did that happen? When did Jesus Christ, when was He instructed of the Father? When did the Father give Him what He was to teach? And the answer is that it certainly did not happen during His earthly life, because all the way back in the Psalms and in Isaiah, we find conversations between the Father and the Son concerning the work of salvation and what the Son was to do. Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said, To my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's the Father speaking to David's Lord, to His Son. And the same thing happens in Isaiah 49 verses 5 and 6. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be His servant. To bring Jacob back to Him so that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. This is the Son speaking. He says, it is... Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So you have these conversations long before Jesus Christ shows up on the scene in which the Father is consulting with His Son about what was to happen in redemption. You say, okay, so they didn't happen in his lifetime. When did they happen? During David's lifetime? Because that's when he hears this promise of the Father that he would defeat the enemies of the Son. Did they happen during David's lifetime? And the answer is no. How about the beginning of history when the persons of the Godhead are deciding together to make man's, man into God's image? Let us make man in his in our own image 
So there are the persons of the God consulting with one another. But is that when the plan of redemption took place? No, how about we go further back and into eternity itself? Before time began, before the foundation of the world, 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, Paul says. In other words, your salvation was given to you before the foundation of the world. It was given to you in Jesus Christ. And Titus 1, 2 says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised from all eternity. Promised to who? To the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the whole covenant, the whole arrangement of salvation takes place even before time begins. That's why Revelation 13, 8 calls Christ the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was as good as slain from the beginning. And in our text, Jesus is saying that He had heard in the past from the Father what He was to say. And that's exactly what He had come into the world speaking. And nothing more. And because of that, He can comfort Himself that God will one day prove Him right. By the way, this also applies to ministers of the Gospel as well. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke only the Father's words. So if a man wants to preach a minister like Him, he has to preach the Word of God, right? Very simple. And he has to do so accurately. So what is the great test of a minister? Well, whether he is concerned with delivering the message of this book. Does he see himself as a messenger whose job is to be faithful and let the results up to God? To pass on what has been handed to him? Or is he some sort of innovator who feels like he needs to reinvent church for our 21st century context? Does he feel like he needs, needs somehow to win the world over? Because if he does, then he's nothing like the Lord Jesus Christ who himself came speaking these things to the world. And the world did not know him because they did not know the Father. In fact, right here in verse 27, the Jews say, or it says about them, that they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. They're so blind, so blind, that they don't recognize that the one, who, the one who sent Jesus Christ was actually the eternal Father. But that's, again, that's a characteristic of everyone who is from the world and of the world. He has no spiritual discernment, no understanding of divine things. But Jesus Christ is showing Himself a faithful teacher, a gentle teacher who is wrestling with the ignorance of man. So notice what happens in verse 28. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Now, notice the second, pronoun, second person pronoun, you. You will do this. You will lift up the Son of Man. This is a prophecy. And the expression to lift up is obviously an explanation of the way in which the Jews were going to execute the Son of Man. They will lift Him up on a cross. 
That's how far their sin will take them. Sure, at this point, it's all mocking, it's all fun and games. But in the future, they're not going to just be happy with making fun of him. No, they're going to end up killing the author of life. You see, sin is always progressive. 2 Timothy 3.13 says that evil men proceed from bad to worse. And 2 Thessalonians 2.10 and 12 says that those who refuse to love the truth so as to be saved are punished with even more satanic delusion. So they get worse even by God's own judgment. The man who gives himself over to sin is always growing worse in it. And in this case, the Jews are going to end up committing the most wicked act ever, ever committed in the history of mankind. They're going to crucify the only innocent man who ever lived and the Son of God Himself. And yet in doing so, they end up actually bringing the greatest good that ever took place in the history of the universe. This is how God works. Great paradox. Notice, in fact, that Jesus does not say that they are going to kill Him or destroy Him or do away with the Son of Man. No, He says, you will lift me up. To play on words. You'll lift me up. You will, by putting me on a cross, you will actually end up exalting me. So, this is not just a prophecy of how Jesus is going to die. No, it's a prophecy on the effect that the death of Jesus Christ was going to have. His fame and His name was going to grow more than ever before. His enemies would be put to utter shame. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 puts it this way. It says that by His cross, the Lord Jesus Christ not only canceled out the certificate of death, or of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, but He also disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through it. But that itself becomes the means through which Jesus gains His greatest victory. And these men, these same men will eventually see that. That's what he is prophesying here. He says, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. And that I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So the Jews will see Jesus' deity clearer than ever before at His death and resurrection. Because there are going to be so many signs surrounding that event that His identity will become undeniable. You might remember darkness over the land, the resurrection of many people, the tearing of the veil of the temple, the empty tomb. And if none of that were enough, then Pentecost comes and the Spirit is poured out. And John chapter 16 verse 8 says that He was going to come to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Jews are going to get even more and more and more evidence. And this is going to lead them to the assurance that not only is Jesus the I Am God, but that He did not do anything from His own initiative, uh, from his own initiative but only spoke the things that the Father taught Him as it says here. And that's just a way for him to communicate the fact that he isn't just a man. He's not just some private person, some random person. No, but rather he is one with the majesty in heaven. In perfect harmony with God the Father. That's why on the one hand he can 
refrain from entering into judgment right there and then. And on the other hand, he can also say what he says in verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He's saying God is with him because these men are not. And he is saying that God has not left him alone because everyone else has and will. Psalm or Isaiah chapter 49 verse 7 calls him the despised one. The one abhorred by the nation. He's an outcast. The question is, have you experienced rejection yourself? Have you been cut off from family relations or friends because you've decided to go the way of Jesus Christ? And if so, remember that Jesus Christ knows exactly how you feel. He's a merciful and sympathetic high priest, the most understanding friend that you could ever go to. So go to him. And, the same, and at the same time, do as he himself did. In this case, he actually assures himself that God is with him. However, notice the basis by which he says that God is with him. End of verse 29, he says, For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Notice, He didn't just please God sometimes. He always did it. And He had to, otherwise, He would not have been an unblemished lamb. He would not have been able to offer atonement for us to satisfy the wrath of God for everyone who would ever believe. He had to live a perfect life. And He did. And a benefit of that perfect life was that he always knew God to be nearby. And this is the same for us, even though we ourselves are fallen sinners and we do stumble in many ways. And yet, when we choose to do the things that please the Lord and we walk according to His law, we can expect His presence and His help. We can take comfort the way Jesus Christ Himself did. Although... He, again, is in a different plane altogether because He is perfection itself. And He didn't fail for a second to please the Father. And that included the way in which He is patiently instructing sinners. Even through the worst kind of opposition, He is pleasing to the Father. He's, he is wrestling with men's pride, with gentleness. He is putting up with their worldliness. He's putting up with their unbelief. He's dealing with their ignorance. And in that, He's pleasing the Father. Not only pleasing the Father, but also winning over His elect, gathering His sheep. Because notice what happens in verse 30. As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. As it turns out, this is why Jesus Christ is enduring such hostility from sinners. This is why He is so gentle and kind in teaching and instructing because He has those who will put their faith in Him. That's why He is not reviling the leaders of Israel in return. That's why He's refusing to ever, into, to ever, to ever enter into judgment with them when He could have because He was focused on His mission of gathering His sheep Laying down his own life for them. So we can be confident that in the future, he will be with us. Regardless of the circumstances, he's shown how much 
He loves us. And how He has proven that He will stop at nothing to guard us and to save, and to save us. And so we thank the Lord Jesus Christ. And we say with David, with David in Psalm 116 verses 12 and 13. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ. For the fact that he endured such hostility from sinners. In order to save us. That he was such a kind and gentle teacher. That he still deals with us in those ways. He wrestles with our pride. He wrestles with our unbelief. He wrestles with our worldliness. And so we pray that we would be able to exalt him. In the way that we live. And bring him all the honor that he is so worthy of. We pray these things for his sake. Amen.